Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello, High Truth listeners. It's always a pleasure to be with you for a potent episode and conversation on drugs. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. What is potency? In reference to drugs, potency means strength and effectiveness. What about the potency of different opioids? Morphine is the opioid that all other opioids are used to compare potency. It was isolated from the opium plant in 1806. Morphine milligram equivalents, MME, is a standard unit used to compare opioids. For example, morphine 5 milligrams is 5 MMEs. Hydrocodone 5 milligrams is 5 MMEs, and fentanyl 50 micrograms is 5 MMEs. Given at these clinical and medical doses, all these drugs, morphine, hydrocodone, and fentanyl, have the same potency. However, milligram to milligram, fentanyl is a thousand times stronger than morphine. That is why we dose it in micrograms and not milligrams in a hospital setting. Fentanyl 5 milligrams would be a thousand times stronger and probably a lethal dose. And there are opioids even more potent than fentanyl. Carfentanyl, a fentanyl analog, is 10,000 times more potent than morphine. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, High Truths. My name is Eitan, and I'm a firefighter paramedic with the Department of Defense. Uh, I really want to thank you, Dr. Lev, for being a great mentor to me over the years. It's always nice to see you when I offload patients at your emergency room. Uh, I regularly bring overdose patients to the emergency department and I was wondering if there are different clinical effects from the different types of fentanyl analogs. Eitan, thank you. Let's get an answer to your question from an expert in chemistry and pharmaceuticals, Dr. Josh Bloom. Dr. Josh Bloom is Director of the Chemical and Pharmaceutical Science at the American Council on Science and Health. The mission of ACSH is promoting science and debunking junk since 1978. 
Dr. Bloom has a PhD in organic chemistry and has experience in drug development of antibiotics and medications for HIV, hepatitis, diabetes, and obesity. He is the author of several patents, papers, books, and opinion pieces. He has done many media pieces on drugs, chemicals, and especially opioids. You can find Dr. Josh Bloom's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Josh Bloom, welcome to High Truths. Thanks for having me. Dr. Bloom, you're a doctor of chemistry. So can you tell us about your background and expertise in drugs and medicine? Well, I happen to have a, a bit of all of those. Um, I got my PhD from the University of Virginia in organic chemistry, which has little to do with drugs or medicine. And I also postdoc at Penn after that. Then I got a job in the pharmaceutical industry in a company that is no longer in existence. It was last called Wyeth 10 years ago, and we were bought by Pfizer. And um, that, that's a little bit like hearing, well, there's a little something on your chest X-ray, but it's probably nothing. Um, when, when Pfizer buys companies, bad things happen. So most of us got let go. But fortunately, I found this great job at the American Council on Science and Health, which, is, which was born to debunk junk science and medicine, something I'd already been writing about um, as a hobby. So, you know, as I've gotten uh, more used to doing this, I find that I can become even more obnoxious and, and that draws in more readers. So um, I guess I'm getting paid to insult stupid people and pass some inf information along at the same time. All right. Well, our listeners are going to be ready for an obnoxious podcast, but I, I bet you have a lot of um, chemistry and science that you can share with us. Um, well, fact, you know, it, it all blends well together because... <laughs> Everything in life goes back to organic chemistry, which is just break, making and breaking bonds and molecules. I was actually a chemistry major a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I've probably forgot most of that. Um, Aton is a, a firefighter paramedic who asks, is there a difference between the various fentanyl analogs? But perhaps start with telling us what's the difference between the, the various fentanyl analogs? Well, first, it's important to distinguish between pharmaceutical fentanyl, the patch, the lollipop, and, and the crap that's coming over from China and Mexico. So that's illicit fent fentanyl and its analogs, which is what the question was about. Um, the uh, the so-called opioid epidemic is really a fentanyl epidemic. And this is due to the illicit stuff that's coming into the country, not people stealing other people's patches. That, that's, if that's a contributor at all, it's extremely minor. Uh, the, there are all kinds of ways to answer that question. And the chemist part of me will say that, uh, first of all, fentanyl is 
very easy to synthesize. If I still had a lab, I could make a whole bunch of it and walk out of the building. I could probably even do it in my kitchen if I had the right chemicals. The, uh, to stay with the chemistry just for a bit, the molecule can really conveniently be divided into four quadrants. And each of the four come together in the synthesis. So if you vary slightly one, two, three or four, or one and three, uh, by using a slightly different starting material, and there are hundreds or thousands of these, it, um, you can put together an infinite number of fentanyl analogs. It's pretty easy. Uh, there are, I don't know, a few hundred that are known at this time, but any chemist in China could be making ones right now that we've never even heard about or thought about. That said, fentanyl's bad enough, but there are other monsters out there, um, carfentanil, sulfentanil, which are dozens of times more potent. And I've got a, I've got a photo of three vials containing uh, lethal doses of heroin, fentanyl, and I believe carfentanil. And heroin, there's a little bit of powder that you can see. Fentanyl is a little bit of powder that you have trouble seeing and you can't see carfentanil at all. That's how little it takes to kill a person. It's a small fraction of a milligram. So, uh, and they're, they're, I'd say with absolute um, sure, sureness that there are worse ones out there. Right, so we need them. Fentanyl is uh, legal fentanyl, the kind that I use at the hospital for uh, treating pain and um, in the ICU for people on a ventilator or for colonoscopies, is is still the same chemical as the kind that's coming from from China. It's the same chemical, uh, assuming that. The Chinese chemist started off to make fentanyl. That said, it's it's going to be different than the pharmaceutical kind because these guys are like a bunch of hacks. So uh, if you take a look at the stuff that's coming in illegally, you can actually tell where it's coming from by looking at the impurities in it, and there are plenty of them. Uh, for, so we know what synthetic pathways the Chinese are using. And the impurities, are they toxic themselves? Uh, for the most part, no. And if so, far, far less than the, the product ex itself. Right. So and I think we're seeing things like it's being cut with uh, Tylenol, acetaminophen, sometimes weird things like xylazine um, and other powders. And cocaine and methamphetamine and heroin. Uh, it's being mixed with all kinds of things. And uh, you can and actually... Apparently, apparently that mixing happens in the United States, that it, it comes across our border 
as pure fentanyl, and then it gets divided up into the entire drug supply. Well, I don't remember if it's Mexico or the U.S., but I've seen um, pharmaceutical pill-making machines that make identical pills to, like, let's say, uh, uh, oxycodone with the right stamp on them, the right color, the little line down the middle. And you can't even tell the two apart, except it's not oxycodone. It's fentanyl plus God knows what. And yeah, then, they could buy those pill presses, right? And the pill presses looks just like a Xanax or yeah. I think today there was a news story from Ohio of Adderall um, uh, overdoses that were actually not, no, Adderall, but but fentanyl. Well, um, you may or may want to open up a new line of conversation, but the more you restrict drugs, the worse drugs you get and the more you get of them. It's like prohibition on steroids. Um, well, that's interesting. So would your philosophy be to allow more drugs to prevent drugs? I say this tongue in cheek, but if I was able to put a big bucket of Oxycontin or Oxycodone, Percocet pills in the middle of the street in every major city, I think deaths would go down because um, as it became, became harder and harder to get opioids for legitimate reasons and you're in the emergency room, you're, you're seeing this firsthand, um, you know, mostly because of a DEA crackdown and a general anti-opioids um, sentiment in the country, which is badly misplaced. Uh, yeah, we've uh, I've got a graphic that shows uh, over a five, six, seven-year period uh, as prescriptions were cut by about half, overdoses were up by three, four, five times. So it's fentanyl that's killing people in the United States. It is not oxycodone. Um, and I would agree with you now. I would say that our opioid prescription epidemic is over. I was part of that problem years ago, but uh, the medical community has responded and um, is prescribing way less. Um, and uh, people are are not dying from prescription opioids. They're dying from the illicit fentanyl that's really in our whole drug supply. I don't know if I agree with you as far as putting buckets of uh, Percocets out in the street. I, I would have a different prevention approach, which is, you know, teaching prevention um, at a younger age and having less addiction in the country in the first place. And, and that would be starting, you know, prevention of all drugs on the developing brain. If we could do that, if we can keep people's brains uh, without drugs until at least 25, we would just statistically have way less addiction in our entire country. Well, I'm going to disagree with you now. All right. Well, this is going to be fun. And I've written about it, that medical use of opioids under, under a doctor's supervision, the rate of addiction is very, very low. This is not how people get hooked they get hooked by recreational use of opioids. And well, I, I don't think that that's what I said. Um, I prescribe opioids every day. 
um, for people who break their bones or have pains. But I, I was also there on the front lines when we had 20% of my patients at one point were coming to the emergency department for some pain disorder. Um, um, but they were addicted to prescription opioids. We did bad by society in a public health sense. Um, but uh, pain is a problem that needs to be addressed, but it, it's not by getting people on uh, high-dose opioids for the entire population that, that well, has uh, chronic pain. You know, what I was really saying is there's been um, a very bad unintended consequence of opioid phobia and that's been pushing people onto street drugs and the numbers bear that out the uh in fact i'm not saying that people can't get addicted to oxycodone they absolutely did especially when oxycontin came out because it was being shoved out the door like candy so uh, Purdue either got what's coming to them or will continue to get what's coming to yeah. them. So I'm not um, I, I, I agree with you. I think under-prescribing has public health costs as well. Suicide is one of them. I've, um, I've heard of and talked to families of victims who, whose family members had chronic pain and were cut off, um, and that drove them to end their lives. Um, so you know, not just street drugs, but, but ending their lives. So yes, there's, I, I call it Goldilocks prescribing as a doctor, not too much, not too litter. You have to do it just right. Well, just right has changed because when the idiots at the CDC came out with their prescribing advice in 2016, they invented something called a conversion table, which supposedly compared the strength of morphine to the other commonly used opioids. So I, I and colleagues of mine have done a lot of research into this and it's all made up. It's based on nothing historically and perhaps worse, it's pharmacologically incorrect scientifically. So, so I, I started this podcast with the morphine equivalent um, calculators that are out there. I have used them. Um, it's probably not perfect if you are a chemist as yourself, but as a clinician, it probably does give you a guideline, right? So 50 micrograms of fentanyl is about 5 milligrams of hydrocodone. Or would you disagree with that? All of that is fine. And the key word you said was guidelines. And the key word in the disastrous CDC 2016 um, publication was guideline. So what happens? 35 states take those guidelines and they make it into law. And all of a sudden, there's an arbitrary morphine milligram equivalent of 90 milligrams set, and there's no reason for that whatsoever. And doctors and patients are being judged uh, as on how, how much they prescribe and how much a patient will take. And it's all based on complete garbage science. And the problem is that the DEA and, and our state governments have stepped between patients and their doctors. 
So I kind of agree with you in parts of what you're saying. For the I I like the CDC guidelines. I think that um, that elevated the work I was doing. I, I wrote guidelines for San Diego six years before the CDC guidelines came out. Um, that helped prevent what 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 you mentioned, and I've called before the Candyland effect. You know, just come to the emergency department, go to your doctor, and we're the Candyland of pres- over really over prescribing um, opioids. Um, and to, we had to have guidelines and, and, um, so I actually like the CDC guidelines. The problem is what you said, when government starts playing doctor, that's when we get into trouble. I I would say that the medical board of California has blood on their hands when they sent out letters to 500 doctors based on data that was years old, even before the CDC license came out and threatened their license. That created a fear for the entire medical community where everybody was afraid to prescribe opioids and drove people to suicide in the streets. And that's wrong. So government interfering with the doctor-patient relationship is a problem, but guidelines as guidelines, I think are very beneficial. I agree with you mostly. Because I'll send We're you finding common of, ground there, Josh. Oh, you know, I'm not like that. <laughs> um, I'll send you a couple of articles which actually dissects both the history and the science behind MMEs, and your hair will fall out when you read them. It's astounding how that chart came to be. And it's also astounding the large number of ways that those comparisons can be completely wrong based on- Well, tell me, give me an example where they're wrong because I've been using those calculators. Well, uh, I don't know if you really want a pharmacology lesson here because people will start shooting themselves. But um, each of the drugs let's say there are a half dozen commonly used drugs on on that chart, roughly. They all have different pharmacological properties, especially metabolism. So for instance, if you give someone morphine orally, it goes into the body, into the blood, and it's metabolized by an enzyme and excreted into the urine. But if you give somebody oxycodone, it gets into the body, into the blood, goes to the liver, and is metabolized to a number of things, some of which are pharmacologically active and some are not. The problem is the half-life or the time it takes for the body to excrete the morphine is an hour or two. And some of these other drugs, it's six to eight hours. So, so you're, what you're saying is the metabolites uh, of several of the drugs are active metabolites and the calculators don't account for that. That's, all, that's a small part of it. What I'm saying is you can't simply say oxycodone is two times stronger than morphine because at what time after dosing Uh, the oxycodone stays in your blood a lot longer than the morphine does. So you're really comparing two different drugs using the same parameters. 
And when you, when you add to that the fact that there's a huge pharmacogenetic component, which I'm sure you've heard about in the two principal uh, cytochrome enzymes that metabolize these drugs, it, you could be giving 50 milligrams of oxycodone to one person and it'll be too much and 50 milligrams to another person won't be nearly enough because they metabolize so differently. Right, and people have different complicated genetics in their metabolism, so it does it that, does get complicated definitely. in that sense, um, and that, that's very true. Um, tell me about um, Narcan. So, I mean, we're talking about potencies, right? And, and, and in general, um, <laughs> You, I mean, you said that you have little jars and, and you have a jar of how potent heroin is compared to fentanyl, compared to carfentanyl, right? So we know that that's true, even though there's intricacies in the metabolism and the half-lives. Um, but so we would expect to need a lot more naloxone for fentanyl compared to hydrocodone or, or not. We hear that we need, you know... Um, a lot more vials of Narcan for a fentanyl overdose than you would for a heroin overdose. All things equal, that would be the case, but you don't know the dose of the fentanyl in the illegal street drug. So you might need less. I mean, pound for pound, you'll need way more. And this is anecdotal, but I've read about plenty of times when um, Narcan absolutely fails to... Uh, revive fentanyl or carfentanyl overdoses just because the, the drugs are so strong, they bind so um, tightly to the receptors that the Narcon doesn't have a chance. And I, I, I would say that if it's failing, it's because you waited too long, right? There's a, a, a there's a, either. there's a, you know, bell shaped curve if you get it right away. And, and we know it works, right? Cause we give fentanyl in the hospital setting, right? And if we give a little too much, we can reverse it in a very Absolutely. controlled environment, right? So we know that it works. If it's not working, it's one of two scenarios. One, it may not be fentanyl, right? I had a, a guy in the ER yesterday and he kept getting, you know, multiple doses of naloxone, not waking up. And and when we finally got his, you know, urine drug screen, he didn't have any fentanyl. He had everything else. He had, you know, methamphetamine and cocaine and Xanax and and a whole bunch of other things that got him to be sedated. But it but it wasn't fentanyl. Or the other part is you waited too long and um and just you know didn't reverse it in time, so it's not going to work or it's not fentanyl, it's something 50 times stronger. So you're gonna give 50 vials of Narcan? Um, well, it, what we do is we put people on a Narcan drip, and I've done that, um, yeah. right? So, so it's continuously going until whatever it is is, is out of the system. Tell me about um, other kind of opioids. Uh, you have an article out on uh, M-fentanyl. You called it fentanyl's evil cousin. Yeah. Why is it? I mentioned this earlier that um, by proper use of organic synthesis, in other words, the way you put molecules together, uh, there are an infinite number of fentanyls that can be made. Some of them are basically inactive. They don't do anything. Some of them are terrible, like uh, 3-methyl fentanyl or carfentanil. And it, it's largely hit or miss. 
And so uh, chemists make, instead of three methyl, maybe three ethyl uh, fentanyl. Now, I don't know if that's better, worse, stronger, more dangerous, or whether it's ever been made. So um, the, the problem is that as these drugs start to infiltrate our supply, um, if fentanyl is replaced with unknowns, then you know, the landscape gets far more dangerous. Right. So, do so is methanol the evil cousin? And what? Why do you well, say that it would be more potent than regular fentanyl? Oh, um, if you look at the two structures, they're virtually identical. They're, and no, no one, uh, no chemist in the world would be able to look at the two of them in the absence of other information and tell you which one's going to be more dangerous. But that methyl group, which is the only difference in the whole molecule, makes it, I don't know, 10, 20, 50 times more potent. Um, this is called structure activity relationships, and it's the uh, cornerstone of drug discovery. For, for example, you're uh, doing HIV research, which I did for a while, and you're looking for an antiviral pill. Well, what you do is you, you start with a molecule that comes from any number of places, and I don't want to bore people with this, and systematically modify it and take a look at what modification over here does and what modification over here does. And you get a pretty good picture of what is going to make the antiviral stronger or what, what's going to make it inactive. The same thing is applied to fentanyl synthesis. Only instead of testing it on cells in dishes or rats, it's being tested on people. So this is- Does the uh, methyl group make something more potent? Like methamphetamine is more potent than amphetamine? It is. Uh, but uh, it works both ways. Um, uh, simply, the simplest example is um, benzene, which is a, a fairly nasty carcinogen that you know, even old school um, organic chemists really won't work with anymore. It's bad stuff. Uh, you, put, you put a methyl group on that, you've got toluene, which isn't carcinogenic. So, uh, a priori, there's no way to know unless you've already got a very good idea of what other substitutions and other structures work and don't in a particular case. So a methyl group is a methyl group. It can make no difference or it can make a lot. What about the isoditazines, another opioid that's coming out there? Is it safer, more potent? How it, does that compare? I really, there's so, so few reports of them. I, I haven't even bothered yet to go into the pharmacology and the toxicity of it. It's on my to-do list. But uh, the one thing I can say about it is that it looks nothing like fentanyl, nothing at all structurally. 
you could put that next to a fentanyl molecule and say this is a potent uh, opioid agonist and no no one in the world would predict it maybe that's why it's being um um we're seeing it here and there in the the drug supply because it's a I don't really know. I can't get into the brains of the uh, drug chemists. Um, but a way, if uh, if we were preventing fentanyl to come over, you'd still have this other um, opioid. Um, the problem is it won't show up in drug screens. Um, so we wouldn't right. be able to tell. And people's fentanyl strips wouldn't be working on it either. I tell you, there, there's nobody more dangerous on the planet than an evil organic chemist because we can just pull off horrible things, make new molecules that will poison people and not be detected. And I'm not doing that FBI, but uh, you know, it, uh, an organic chemist who becomes a medicinal chemist, a drug, in drug discovery has an awful lot of knowledge that can be used for good and bad. What goes into the brain of the chemists who are making these evil drugs? Is it, um, is it just pursuit of money? And uh, what's best for sales, like purity, or you know, you would think, why, why would a drug that's killing off so many Americans be good for business? If I could answer that, I'd be in jail. <laughs> uh, it, it used to be that if you um, took a drug and made a close analog of it, that was uh, the you know, same basic structure, same properties, you can get away with it because it wasn't specifically listed as a prohibited drug. Now, legislation has now changed that so that um, uh, drugs and their close analogs are equally illegal. So a lot of it started back when people thought they could get it, well, people did get away with making uh, tweaks in the molecule, all of a sudden there's not, it, it's nothing illegal because it's never existed before. So that was undoubtedly part of it. Uh, I, in terms of profit, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think something that <laughs> kills like your customers is, is all that great a business plan. I, I just can't answer it. Um, All right. All right. And we don't want you to go to jail if you did know the answer, right? There's some <laughs> bad people out there that are either doing or being told to do this. And and you see the results. I, I support an organization called Families Against Fentanyl. They want, um, we want fentanyl to be de declared a weapon of mass destruction um, in order to prevent um, the folks in China, India, Pakistan, wherever these precursors are coming, being put together and then killing American people, not not the medicinal. Uh, you know, there's almost nobody really dying of fentanyl that that the medical supply is is giving. Um, but we want to put strong financial major obstacles for the drug supply coming into our country. Um, do you support that? Uh, I think it's a wonderful, but probably futile endeavor. Um, 
first of all, you just brought back a memory. You must probably remember, I guess it was the 1980s, when a bunch of Chechen separatists took over a theater in Moscow. And the Russians, not known for their subtlety, uh, especially now, uh, piped in a bunch of gas. And for years, people were trying to figure out what it was. And at the time, 3-methylfentanyl or mefentanil was the subject. Now, it turns out they've looked at blood specimens and everything from back then, and it wasn't. It was mostly carfentanil and, uh, I don't know, one of the others. That was a weapon of mass destruction right there. It came out of the theater. And they couldn't be revived, a lot of them. I, I, yeah, and pe people die, and, and that was one example in, in that, that theater um, of weaponizing fentanyl or carfentanil, whatever the, the analogs were doing, and it, it killed people. I would say that what we're having happen in our country is the same kind of thing. It's not being piped in the theater. It's just, you know, it's more like COVID where, like, it's just kind of around and you never know what, you know, in San Diego County, two and a half deaths a day. I mean, in, in, in the United States, you know, one you know, 747 full of people dying a day. I think that that's um, another little war of its its kind, and we're not going to treat our way out of that or put, you know, bottles of hydrocodone on the street <laughs> as your method of getting out of that. We have to get at the supply. It's not acceptable for people just to be drugging and killing Americans. Well, as an organic chemist, which is always a really bad way to start a sentence because people turn the, the damn thing off immediately. But I, I can tell you that it's very difficult to stop because I know that the DEA tracks the chemical precursors for obviously for methamphetamine, like they did on Breaking Bad, but also for fentanyl. And there's certain chemicals that if you got in your possession, there's not, you're doing nothing except making fentanyl. There's no other reason to have it. But um, so instead of buying that, you make it. Well, the, the, the chemical that you're making it from, is that on the list of, of things to watch out for? Because it may be a very common chemical that's used by half the labs in the world. So, um, the organic chemist can convert common, non-restricted chemicals into fentanyl chemicals, and it's quite easy. So, Josh, as an organic chemist, don't you think if we wanted to figure this out, we could? I mean, we got the DNA of COVID, you know, figured out in no time, and we, if we want, we if we had the will to to stop fentanyl precursors, and we put all our mind and intellect and will into that project, we could do it. I, we just, I feel like we don't want to, we we're not putting the effort in that direction. Well, we could probably stop it in this country, but not in China. Um, these things, some of these analogs are so potent. You could put it in a little tiny baggie, put it in an envelope and mail it to somebody no dog's going to detect it. it. Just go through in the mail. Um, that, that's why fentanyl started being used in, to replace heroin in the first place, because you need so much less of it. So I, I think that if we wanted to, we could 
develop the technology that would detect it in the mail or detect it in the border or detect it in I mean we're we're a smart society if we put our efforts into that if we put a man on the moon or you know or going to Mars we can do this if we wanted to you know what that's possible but you know I'm pretty up on this kind of thing and I I wouldn't even know where to start because it because of the potency it you, you could slip it in 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 an earbud or anything and it, it it's just it takes so little to do the job and that's the real problem how do you stop something that is essentially invisible so tiny yeah um talk to me about methamphetamine sam quinones in his book the least of us talked about the p2p meth and that it's so much more potent but yet Kind of like fentanyl is fentanyl, right? Methamphetamine is methamphetamine. Why is a P2P methamphetamine so much worse? All right, so I'm going to have to watch myself here because uh, there, there are two ways to answer it. One of which will get rid of every one of your listeners within 15 seconds. <laughs> and it's called stereochemistry. So I'm going to just avoid it unless you. Well, no, I, I think we have, are you talking about the, the D and L isomers? Yes, that's. The, the right and the left hand. There's two, two uh, methamphetamine when it's made by Sudafed comes out with a right hand okay. version and a left hand version, right? Yes. Okay. And uh, see, here we go. I, I warned you. <laughs> when you make it from Sudafed, you're actually getting a mixture of, of two different methamphetamines. I believe it's a three to one mixture is how it comes out. I'm not positive of that. And both of them are pharmacologically active. So when you make it from uh, phenylacetone, P2P method, you get what's called a racemic mixture. So half of, half of the, uh, the, uh, the meth is good meth, and the other half has a different pharmacological profile, but it's, it's not really the one that people like to smoke. So the, the, I think it, the, the difference really comes down to purity. And um, when people were cooking meth from Sudafed when you could get it uh, in trailers, we're not talking about some of the most skilled artisans ever to undertake chemical synthesis. You know, they were making meth, I don't know what period it was, 20, 30, 40%, who knows what was in it, but you know, it worked. Uh, the PT, and then, you know, I mean, here's the law of unintended consequences again. Once Sudafed went behind the counter and you needed ID to get it, well, there wasn't enough of it. So uh, uh, the P2P method, which is phenyl 2-propanone plus methylamine, is a way better uh, method to make it. it. Makes it much cleaner and it's really much easier. So what the product that comes out of the P2P method is more of the D isomer. And I remember D for drug. That's a good one. Uh, um, or you still get both. 
you get you get both in a 50-50 mixture. But the I think what's driving you know the real story is the, the purity of it because you know even a, even a hack can make 80 or 90 or plus percent pure meth by that method whereas if you do it from the Sudafed with all the ungodly reagents that are required to do it it generally comes out as 20 30 40 percent I've written about this I don't remember the num the numbers offhand but let's just say the purity was double or better once people switched over to the P2P method. So, so it's did, more pure, it's probably faster to make, and you have just, I think, sheer quantity. And that is just flooding our border and being in San Diego. Um, it, it is just um, everywhere. Um, so very, very sad. I think it's just a, a huge quantity just... So that brings me back to my original point about drug prohibition. When opioids became diff difficult to get, people went to heroin and then fentanyl came in to fill that market. When people were using Sudafed to make meth and the, and the Fed yanked it off the counter, now we got P2P and it's worse. So uh, do you see what I'm getting at here? Yeah, I I agree with you, and, and historically, that's true. Every time, it's a whack-a-mole. Every time we solve one problem, we, we fix it, and then we get a worse problem. Absolutely. Like prohibition. I don't know if the answer is like, okay, well, let's just leave it as it is, <laughs> right? We can't leave it as it is. Well, and all, the drug all, dealers are always a step ahead or several steps ahead. Well, people are always going to get high or drunk. I mean, that's in our nature. There's nothing you can do about that. I, I think you, their supply matters. You're right that we won't get rid of all addiction ever. It's a, you know, it's a problem since the age of the Bible uh, of, 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 of people using alcohol and, and drugs and having that problem, but not to the, quote, biblical proportions of people dying that we have now. And I think that that's because of the availability and the huge supply and the normalization of, 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 of drugs um, at a young age. I'm going to give you the opposite argument. All right. And this is a story very, people, very few people know, and I've written about it. Now, Purdue, obviously not a bunch of great people over there. Uh, you know, whatever they did in pushing out OxyContin, whatever lies they may have told to doctors and suppliers, well, they're going to burn in hell for this. But it turns out that what the company did right was actually the start of when things went bad. And this is what no one knows. In 2010, Purdue, which had been working on ways to um, make the drug less abusable, uh, before that, people would just take an OxyContin, they'd grind it up, and they'd have 50, 90 milligrams of oxycodone, and they could snort it or shoot it up. So finally, the chemists figured out how to turn the pills into something that turned into a gum which was essentially unusable. And this was 2010. Uh, 
regular old abusable Oxycontin started to go away, was replaced by this stuff, which the addicts really couldn't use or didn't want to. And guess when heroin started taking off? At the exact moment when Oxycontin became unavailable. So there's actually no, an example of no good deed going unpunished. The, the Purdue chemists actually did their job, which had they done 20 years before, we might not be seeing this. Well, it's a, I don't know if I completely agree. It's, it's, you're right. Historically, that that's the way um, things happen. The peak of the opioid prescription epidemic was about 2011. So, you know, medical community came down um, on over prescribing and various innovations, including the deterrence that you mentioned have been in place. And at the same time, uh, heroin became more available, cheaper, um, and, uh, you know, and, and there was a tra transition and just like now heroin is down and fentanyl is up. So I think that I, I don't know if it's more, you know, just because the rooster rose didn't mean that the sun went up. Um, but it is a drug supply, um, pattern that we're seeing. Um, in this it's case, scary if you think about, okay, what if we did fix the fentanyl problem? Are we going to have something worse? I don't, you know, I don't see how it could be worse than where we are right now, but it's, it is it is scary to think about that. Let me, just, let me just throw in one more thing about the supply. I've read papers and I, one of the diagrams I've sent to you makes this crystal clear. Um, Tell us about the diagram so we'll, we can. Okay. There's, there's a graph of oxycodone overdoses peaking in 2010. At that time, uh, abuse-resistant Oxycontin came out and it peaks and it starts to head straight down and keeps going down while at the same time heroin starts going up. So, you, you know, you, I cannot prove that this, that this is cause and effect, but in this case, I'm absolutely sure of it. Well, so, I, I don't know if that really makes sense because it wasn't, I mean, having studied um, what I call the death diaries, I look at the medical examiner and every prescription that was written for anybody who um, died of a medicine at that time, it was not all that, it was not all Percocet, right? There was plenty, there was hydrocodone on other ones, other drugs not well, just the deterrent ones that you mentioned. Well, hydrocodone is weaker. Uh, oxycodone is much more popular. Like I hang with the drug crowd and I know this stuff. And the, there were more deaths in that time, I could tell you for sure, having looked at that, every single person who died during those years of hydrocodone than, um, uh, than hydro, uh, oxycodone. Right, well, that's More prescriptions they, written for hydrocodone. Well, it was schedule three then. And it wasn't in 2013 when they moved it up to Schedule Two. So, uh, you know, I I believe what you're saying is, is absolutely correct. But that was a matter of availability, because Schedule Three drugs can be refilled six times, and you know the deal with that. Yeah, um, yeah. Again, so supply matters, right? The availability of the drugs when they became more available when doctors didn't have triple prescriptions, when any specialists can give any drug for 
whatever reason, supply went up. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, well, I think it's a, it's a problem. They're both right because increased supply obviously did lead to an, uh, an increased surge of addiction. But what I'm saying is so did a decreased supply. And I can give you plenty of evidence on that. Those are not mutually exclusive. So, Dr. Bloom, you have some interesting books out, um, The Name Game and Natural and Artificial Flavors. Tell us a little bit about that. If you go to Amazon, you'll see, like, uh, like five, the five people that bought it. Uh, <laughs> it was more of an internal project than an attempt to... Um, to sell books. I, in fact, it's kind of funny. It's, I, I went, one of the two, um, I went on and I reviewed it and I said, this is one of the best books ever. Whoops, I wrote it, never mind. <laughs> and that's still up there, by the way. That's like my podcast. My mom listens to it. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're changing subject to another thing that drives me crazy. And that's this, um, chemical-free, organic lifestyle thing that's taken over the country for decades now. And um, there are, there's a, still a mentality and people refuse to drop it that uh, natural things won't hurt you and chemicals will. It's completely false. Uh, I agree. <laughs> Just great. because it's organic, that means it's maybe costs more money, but it doesn't mean it's healthier. Well, it, um, it, this is, I'll go as far as call it a, uh, calling it a marketing scam, which is almost entirely funded by the organic food industry. And you see it in Whole Foods, and you also see... Um, uh, there are certain environmental groups that are taking a lot of money from like Stonyfield and these organic companies to start scaring people about trace amounts of chemicals in, in their bodies. And um, I've, I've hammered on them time and time again. And, you know, there's nothing better than a good scare campaign and it works very well because people are have it now programmed programmed into them that there's this big surge in cancer because of all the chemicals we consume well it turns out that's false cancer has been pretty much stable for 40 years and that the chemicals I think we are seeing an increase in number of pediatric cancers over in, time in, I, in leukemia, I believe there is an increase, and I have no explanation for that. Doesn't necessarily mean chemicals, though. Um, people always jump to that, but you know, maybe it's age of conception. You can see, or doc Dr. Stuart Reese writes about that, and he's done extensive geospatial analysis um, linking the rise of pediatric cancers with increasing cannabis use. Um, which some people say is, you know, natural, a medicine, and yet every single day in the emergency departments, I see people with marijuana poisonings every single shift. And I, I to me, that's a strategy because those are people who are being deceived 
um, intentionally just like, deceived for profit. Just like everybody who shops in Whole Foods. There's no difference. Whole Foods is chemical free, no preservatives, no artificial this, no that. That's, that's, uh, that's a scam. Uh, the idea that marijuana is somehow a benign drug, maybe because you, people smoked it 40 years ago and nothing really terrible happened to them, that's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, it's anything but. Oh, and, I'm glad. See, I knew we'd have common ground here. It, it, it's But what's different with marijuana than other things with, with the illicit fentanyl or the methamphetamine or even prescription opioids, the risks are clearly there and outlined. And in, and in marijuana, the public is really uh, being tricked by, by the big industry, like, you know, the big tobacco industry, which is now the big marijuana industry in, in um, degrading my profession as a physician, calling it a medicine when I can't prescribe real medicines um, with that uh, liberality. Um, and uh, making it sound like it's unharmful because we're dealing with the harms of it every day. Well, uh, I could not agree more. Um, there's big business behind this. There is mind, you know, mind control sounds like paranoia, but it's kind of like a, a fear programmed thought process, let's call it. So the harm in marijuana is what you're seeing in the ER. The harm in Whole Foods is what you're seeing on your credit card bill. And they're both based on myths. Yeah. Although if you want to spend a little money and shop at Whole Foods, that's not the same as ending up with psychosis or suicidal ideations in the emergency department. Of course, but the principle behind it is identical. They're, Whole Foods is portrayed as being something that it's not, you know, the, the recipe that'll keep you alive 150 years. Marijuana is being portrayed as safe because it's organic, like Whole Foods, and it's not. So the, the marketing slash uh, manipulation behind the two are the same, although the, obviously the results are completely different, but the principle is is pretty much the same. Do we false, agree with this? You're saying it's false, false advertisement. Yes. In one case, it's doing harm to your body. In the other case, it's doing harm to your wallet. Yeah. Well, uh, not Dr. equal. Moon. I'm not saying they're equal. It's just the same. False information yes. is what you're saying. Yep. Um, any advice you have for Aton, our firefighter, who who wanted to know about different types of fentanyls? Well, yeah, don't try any of them. <laughs> okay. He saves, he rescues people. Yeah. Oh, I see. Uh, you're talking about resuscitating them? Uh, he knows more than I do about bringing somebody back from a fentanyl uh, overdose. And he probably doesn't know that if car fentanyl becomes widespread, it's not gonna work. So that's some scary four letter word 
right there. So, uh, I, I, you know, these the, the super fentanyls are nothing but trouble. And it just depends on how much is around where. I hope that answers his question. I, I think it, it will. It's helpful. And I want to say thank you to Eitan, who is our frontline hero responding to 911 calls, really bringing people from, up from the dead with Narcan and reversing. And unfortunately, he has too much experience with that. But Eitan, you're our nation's hero. And I thank you for your work and your care. And um, thank you to you, Dr. Josh Bloom. You enlighten us with chemical education, high truths, and um, we can use that approach to the issue of drugs and addiction. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.